0: On the record. On the
1: record. News Talk.
2: A very good morning. It's Sunday the 9th of December. This is News Talks on the Record with me, Susan kill with you until 1 o'clock this afternoon. If you want to contact the pro- programme, you can send us a text 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. You'll also get me on Twitter at Susan kill News. Now, lots coming up on the programme this morning. We will start off with a look at the Sunday newspapers along with our panel, Neve Lyons, political editor of the Times-Ireland edition, Colette Brown, barrister and columnist with the Irish Independent and John Isle, head of communications for Goodbody. You're all very welcome. Good morning. morning. Thanks for coming in. Now, we're going to have a quick look at some of the headlines on the front pages this morning for those lucky people who are still in bed and haven't seen a paper yet. The Sunday Independent leading with Brexit this morning. It's their lead story. Varadkar holds firm but ready to listen. A senior government source telling the paper the government is willing to listen to new proposals and suggestions on Brexit from Theresa May if the current deal is voted down on Tuesday. Also, the Sunday Times. uh, Brexit also the lead story in the Sunday Times this morning under the headline... May heading for Brussels in last bid to save deal. Uh, The paper reporting this morning that Theresa May is being told to emulate Margaret Thatcher's budget showdown with EU bosses in 1984 if she's a chance of getting her deal passed on Tuesday. The Sunday Business Post uh, is leading with the investigation into alleged data breaches at Independent News and Media. The paper reporting that the investigation into INM data deepens. Uh, Health also making the front of the Sunday Business Post this morning. Susan Mitchell- writing maternity hospitals can't guarantee abortion services will be ready as we know the plan is for them to be rolled out in January also on the front of the Sunday Times Justine McCarthy writing nuns drag feet on hospital deal this relates to the new National Maternity Hospital in Dublin Uh, the Sunday world leading with My Hell the story of a woman who was assaulted by her ex who will spend just 22 months in prison and that man had the final 18 months of his four year sentence suspended And finally, the Mail on Sunday, uh, leading with the headline, backlash over demotion of RTE's Martina John Lee, uh, the paper's political editor writing this morning that RTE has found itself embroiled in another gender row after one of its most high profile correspondents, Martina Fitzgerald was replaced as political correspondent by Paul Cunningham. So as I mentioned there, are uh, health stories on the front of the Sunday Times and the Sunday Business Post this morning. Two big health stories dominating today, abortion and the rollout of services in January and whether we're ready for that to happen or not. And also the new National Maternity Hospital and the involvement of the Sisters of Charity. We might actually start with that one, Eve. uh Justine McCarthy, she's writing about this in the Sunday Times today. Yeah, this has been an ongoing
3: saga now for many years. And just when we thought it had all been concluded successfully, an agreement was reached. It was brokered by Kieran Mulvey, who has a lot of experience in these things as a mediator, um, between the um, Hollow Street and those in the National Maternity Hospital on one side and St Vincent's on the other side Um, for some reason and we don't exactly know why yet um, Simon Harris has decided to go back into that deal and and wants extra measures. We know that he wants uh, an independent person representing the state on the new board um, of what is to become St Vincent's Hospital in Elm Park Now he he has consistently said that he's worried um, that future ministers down the line wouldn't fully be able to, I suppose, ensure that women got the best services. Um, and a lot of that is around the notion that um, this question of whether state law or canon law will come into play. Um, and it's already the case that the Vatican will have to approve the final kind of divestment um, of the nuns and the, and the hospital uh, from What's, it's very complicated to explain the companies, but basically to say that there's a new company being set up as a charity to run the hospital. Um, and that th- that initial move will require sign off from the Vatican. So canon law already in play there. The Taoiseach was at pains during the week to say um, that once that's all done, that everything on offer uh, by the state will be on offer there And that includes the type of procedures that the Catholic Church wouldn't exactly agree with the likes of vasectomies or, as we'll be talking about later, um, uh, abortion Abortion. services. The Taoiseach also said during the week that if they were doing this again, they would do it differently the next time. And referred to really starting from scratch on a greenfield site because everything that has slowed down the hospital so far has been to do with negotiations, uh, the divestment Um, And I suppose uh, this tug of war on the one hand between you know, the the Catholics who, who own and run the current hospital and the National Maternity Hospital, which is a state run. And, and a point Justine McCarthy makes as well today is the idea that the, uh, you know, archaic Hollis Street Hospital, which many women out there will be familiar with and men, of course, um, 50,000 babies have been delivered there since all this began. And a lot of money has been pumped into a very old, rickety hospital just to kind of keep it working. I mean, she makes the point, do we just need to, you know, extricate ourselves from this entire situation, start again, and at least when we're heading in the right direction, we'll be absolutely certain um, that there's not going to be any... um, any of this kind of tug of war element what was described in the Dodger during the week as kind of the, the minister who has begun sort of a cold war between both sides it's a very complicated situation
2: It is complicated and it's incredible <coughs> to think that it's gone on so tw- is it 2015 2013, that the- 2013, 2013 was when James
4: Riley first, first announced, announced the plans it. and there was then a two year standoff before a cure between the National Maternity Hospital and the St Vincent's group about how this new maternity hospital would be delivered on the St Vincent site there was a two year standoff between them until Kieran Mulvey got um, involved. involved and then he brokered that agreement and now we seem to have another kind of standstill whereby mm. we're waiting for the nuns to incorporate a company and there's another deadline that's coming down the track about um, EU law, about um, how the environmental kind of building regulations that would be involved in the hospital that if we don't get sign off by the 1st of January I think, or the first 31st of December, then the entire project could have to go back to the drawing board to incorporate these new EU laws. So we have this, this mad deadline that's coming down the tracks. And in relation to the point about the Greenfield site... You see, I think part of the reason that the National Maternity Hospital wanted to relocate to the St. Vincent's site is because they want to be associated with a tertiary hospital, Mm. which would improve services for women. So Rona Murray was interviewed yesterday. There was a lengthy interview with her and she was making the point that currently at the moment if you have a woman who's in a critical condition and is very unstable and she needs surgery, if something goes drastically wrong within the National Maternity Hospital, then she has to be transferred to St. Vincent's, which is a three kilometre journey away, which Mm. obviously isn't isn't good and isn't the best care for women. Once this National Maternity Hospital is relocated onto the St. Vincent's site, she'll just have to go down a corridor to get that care. So they want to be associated with St. Vincent's because it will improve um, the kind of um, services that women are entitled to. It will make um, healthcare for women safer. Um, It just seems to be extraordinary that there seemed to be um, a lot of uh, investment towards getting the Kiran Mulvey deal signed off mm. and everybody was kind of jubilant after it was <laughs> done and there was agreement that maybe this would work. But the fact that, that nothing has stalled, not a sod has been turned on, on the site so far to develop this um, and we are facing down the barrel of another deadline towards the end of this year and it remains uncertain whether when we are actually going to see this National Maternity Hospital delivered, which again was first announced in 2013 and the point also should be made that building costs are increasing all the time. The projected cost of this hospital has increased. It went from 150 million initially it's 350 million now. I mean, unless people kind of get a bit of momentum going and get agreement on how they want to proceed, we're going to see costs spiralling, we're going to see women receiving less than ideal healthcare and we possibly see another 50,000 babies born in this Mm -hmm. country before we and more money hospital. pumped into Hollis
2: Street, mm. like as Neve pointed out, to kind of keep it just ticking over.
4: Mm. Which is a complete waste of money when everybody knows that the services are going to be moving. And exactly. the government
3: already had a golden share in play. <coughs> so I'd really love to to get to the bottom of what the minister's issue was here. Perhaps there's a sense, because I, I listened to Rona Mahoney yesterday saying, look, people are scaremongering that are writing about this. And I've, I kind of feel like saying, well, did you think or, or, or did, did Hollistery think that perhaps they would just get to the point where the hospital is built and then they kind of muddle through once they, you know, establish the hospital? And, and I suppose maybe they would be convincing enough uh, during board meetings that, that
2: things would work themselves out. I mean, that's actually not a way to go about mm. establishing a hospital from scratch. John, let me bring you in on this. Um, Another point that Justine McCarthy makes is that the religious sisters of charity have made no... No contact with the Archbishop of Dublin about relinquishing their ownership um, of St Vincent's Hospital to facilitate the new hospital. And this is something I don't know if anybody saw Colin McGorman tweeting about last night. He had a big tread on this on Twitter last night about like how dangerous that could be. You alluded to it there, Neve, in the sense that basically the Vatican could decide at any point down the line um, if the Sisters of Charity... You know, can or can't g- divest exactly. Can what what they own and who they can give it yeah. to, basically, and that they could change their mind the on it transition the line. basically.
1: Exactly, and it's one that they're entitled to make, mm. of course, as the as the owners of the of the property um, and the hospital group. And and, and I wonder if Simon Harris is pulling back or, or insisting now in this golden share because of a concern uh, about, let's say, interference or continued influence um, mm. from that side. But we're at a point now where the the state. The state isn't in a position to control the entire process. The state is depending on cooperation from another side, whose interests in some ways are antithetical, right? So, this comes at a time where where we've uh, passed the abortion referendum. We're expecting the introduction of uh, abortion services, which would which would um which would be in, involved in in this hospital to to some extent. And um, I I just wonder whether they're, we're we're fighting a different battle now. And and, and again, as Neve says, it's it's very murky. Who who is the point of friction here, whether it's the the side that is supposed to be divesting, or whether this is uh, a kind of a standard, let's say, Irish government, uh, you know, slow walk through a process that they didn't quite understand before they entered it. I mean, we've seen things like this with um, the attempt to reform the leaving cert, or the, the attempt to get religion out of schools, it always takes a lot longer. And um, we seem beholden to a lot of interests that maybe are Beside the the point, right? If if the point is to have a functioning maternity hospital, why are we worrying so much about let's say the feelings and the interests of of people who aren't actually interested in the same outcome as the government is?
2: we'll move on to abortion because i want there's a lot of coverage um on abortion in all of the papers today as well um neva come back to you susan mm-hmm. mitchell's writing in the Sisa, in the sunday business post today and there has been a lot of talk we know that abortion services are to be rolled out on the 1st of january but i think the body of people who think that maybe that might not happen now seems to be growing we're hearing a lot from doctors we're hearing from midwives we're hearing from um the professors of different maternity hospitals what kind of coverage is this getting in the papers today
3: it's, i suppose we're at a very interesting
2: juncture because I was
3: thinking to myself, if my boss came to me and said, here's something that you need to implement by the 1st of January, I'd kind of look at him and go, really? It's just, it's a couple of weeks before Christmas. This is all very sudden. Um, there has been an extremely long run into this whole process. And I suppose where we're standing at now is the idea that the legislation may be through But the clinicians are worried that their guidelines aren't clear. Now, one of the things I find puzzling is the notion that a lot of these hospitals, I mean, we we see in uh, the Sunday Business Post story that it's... um, the Coombe and the Rotunda, who are saying they can't give January 1st as as an accurate timeline Mm. for them to begin services. Now, we know that every year, on average, there's about 30 terminations under the protection of life during pregnancy. So, maternity hospitals are arguably getting very extreme, very complex, difficult situations that they're handling perfectly well. This, I suppose, is at the kind of lower end of the scale in terms of... um, the type of services that are going to be offered. So on the one hand, you can understand that some doctors, GPs in particular, might be worried about a whole new regime that's coming in. But I suppose when you look at the hospital and the area which seems to have the most concern is this idea that a a woman, after the timeline um, elapses for taking the abortion pill at your GP practice, it's the nine to 12 week period that you would have to be admitted to hospital. And this seems to be the issue that hospitals have and they're worried about uh, patient safety in that regard. Equally with the doctors, I've seen things like, you know, we don't know... Um, how to how, where will we be getting these drugs how do we store them uh, what type of equipment do we need to test the exact date of pregnancy mm. for women now to be perfectly honest with you you know anybody who works in a in a pharmacy or dispensary will tell you that how to order or store drugs sounds like the type of thing that could be told to you in about 45 seconds but the phrase that keeps going through my head is docs Doctors differ and patients die. I really wish the government had started the whole country on a trajectory before this referendum was even held. The idea that we should have had a very clear process in place for things that would happen on both sides, you know, not just for people who kind of won the referendum, that on the other side that there would be very clear services introduced for people who want to continue with the pregnancy if they have a fatal fetal, who need adoption services, who need counselling or on the other side, um, you know, obviously there's going to be a helpline set up and we know about all the different services that are in place here but doctors needed to be taken on that path as well because many people feel that they can't prescribe a drug that it's just against their own personal belief system but really everyone really has to be on the same page about what is now law well it's about to become law certainly clear the door it's about to go through the shannon and 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 it'll be aired a bit more tomorrow on that so once it's signed off by the president it really is over to the clinicians in this regard but they have to get on the same page about
2: Mm. it. We've heard a lot from uh, Peter Boyle and John I'll come back to you on this Um, he was the man who was tasked with making sure, you know, all the services were in place and best practice was met and all of that, he's confident that it will come into place, you know, on the first of January. And he makes the point that if we, if we were to strive for a perfect, perfect system, that women in Ireland would wait another mm-hmm. couple of years for this service to come into place. But would you agree with some of the points that Neve made there about it being a little bit too late in the day for, you know, to try and get doctors and people who are actually involved in providing? the service on side and on board
1: it's late if they're only thinking of it now which i don't believe is the case i I don't think any hospital has not gone through a scenario planning initiative once the uh referendum was scheduled for a vote i'd say any hospital with a responsible board said okay off you go now and come up here's a committee form a plan for what you're going to do if this is introduced. So I think I think a lot of that work must have been done. And if it hasn't, it's a terrible dereliction. I think it reflects very badly on the hospitals and the people who are running them. Um, but the the problem now is if they're not ready, they're not ready, right? And they have to own up to that. And then they have to say when they are going to be ready. The problem I foresee happening if we're not ready to go on January 1st is that it opens up a vacuum in which sort of nettlesome political debate can can creep in and begin to influence mm-hmm. the outcomes, right? Yeah. So we've settled the principle, but we haven't settled the details. And I think the longer it goes without practice happening, without a clinical practice becoming established, um, I think the the more we will start to see that principle. Get eroded, right? And, and there are models for this. You can see the United States supposedly settled the principle of abortion in 1973, and it's been whittled away every decade since then. So I think that's something we have to be on guard about. And I, I do think um, the way Ireland has gone about it has been very, very prudent, and, and I, I think pretty respectful to most people's point of view. And it's a, what we're expecting to see in the, in, in, once the legislation is implemented is something quite conservative as far as abortion regimes go. All of that should be kind of reassuring. Um, but at the same time, we can we can fall into this thing where we're arguing over tiny details and principles. And there's one, there's one story I think it's a, it's a column by, by Liam Weeks in the Sunday Independent mm-hmm. today, where he says something that 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 to me is a little bit worrying. He says the Irish electorate did not necessarily vote to legalize abortion; they voted to remove its constitutional prohibition, which is not the same thing. So
3: So, I mean, that is just, that's a nonsense point. I understand it's a nonsense point, but it's, but
1: like, (laughs) this is an attempt to sort of have the argument over again, right? So, yeah. like, well, that sentiment will re-emerge and the long. We're hearing that already, exactly. even as we
2: hear from the doctors, as we hear from the obstetricians. Some of them who are calling for emergency general meeting. We're hearing the debate been had again and again. Well, I don't think
4: so. I, I, I don't think necessarily that that's necessarily true <coughs> in, from the doctors' pr- perspective. I know that there is a minority within the, uh, GPs and presumably within you know consultant op- obstetricians and as well yeah. who are who are pro-life and you know have a conscientious objection. Into it and that's fine. But I think the vast majority of clinicians are, are, are on board with this legislation. But uh, you know, I think it'd be foolish for the government to ignore the warnings that are coming from these obstetricians because we have pro-choice obstetricians who are very involved in advocating for the removal of the Eighth Amendment, who want to provide women with the service, who are raising the alarm and citing concerns. People like Chris Fitzpatrick, there's a column by Keelan O'Donoghue who makes the point that she's pro-choice, she's also raising concerns about it. And what I was surprised to read actually from Susan Mitchell and the Sunday Business Post was that the masters of the three Dublin maternity hospitals wrote to Simon Harris as early as the October 30th to say that they had they had concerns about the January 1 implementation date they said that the model of care hadn't been established that there were no clinical guidelines in place that extra resources hadn't been assigned to these hospitals for the provision of the services. And I think in the abortion debate that we had in this country, the input from experts like obstetricians was very important in swaying the opinions of very many Irish voters. And I think we can't just discount those people now because, I mean, when you think about it, the legislation hasn't even been enacted yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be in the Shannon next week. So we have doctors and hospitals at the moment who are trying to provide for service that currently even though the uh, the amendment the constitutional amendment has been repealed abortion service are is still illegal and it won't be legal in this country until this legislation is enacted and we don't know when that's going to be there's less than 20 days of until January 1. So this is less than three weeks. We don't have legislation in place. We have no clinical guidelines for doctors, no extra resources. Now, it's true to say that the very vast majority of abortions in this country, when they do happen, it's going to be quite a simple procedure. I know some people won't like me saying that, but that's actually the truth. It's going to involve taking two pills. And it will and happen
2: in your, G- your GP. will give you And those your, your
4: GP and you'll, you'll be able to do it at home. Now, I think for doctors, the concern is between, as Nave was saying, uh, between nine and twelve weeks, and if because abortion is going to be illegal, um, you know, up, up to twelve weeks, if there's a concern about the gestational age of the of the fetus, and if somebody comes in and they're just before the twelve weeks, and we have this three day period within which
3: you're cooling off time, yeah, yeah, and it, and, and if
4: you go over the twelve weeks, and also I don't think that we should forget that contained within this legislation is a provision that criminalizes doctors if they don't strictly adhere to legislation that hasn't yet been enacted. Now, if I was a clinician and I was trying to provide care, I would be extremely worried about the prospect of a 14 year mm. prison sentence mm. unless I was adhering to these very, very strict guidelines within the legislation. So, of course, doctors have concerns, particularly when there's a provision contained within the legislation that I say there's no legal basis to have this criminalization period. I can't understand why it's contained within the legislation. There's no other health care provisions or health care service in which doctors are threatened with a 14 year mm. prison. Sentence, if 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 they don't strictly adhere to the provisions within um within the legislation that authorises it, so I mean these these concerns I think are legitimate. There's something that the government has to address, and I think the January one, even though I'm very pro choice myself, the January one deadline was a completely arbitrary date that the government has has come up with, and if it needs to be pushed out a bit to ensure that. Um, People can be confident that the healthcare provision is going to be safe, that women are going to be treated fairly and that doctors don't have to worry about ending up in prison for 14 years. I don't think that's unreasonable. Yeah,
3: because we've seen, I suppose, well, one of the things I would say is that in, in many hospitals, particularly in maternity hospitals, the expertise is all there. I mean, when you look at that nine to 12 week window, that would be a very common window for women coming in, miscarrying a baby. So... You know, it's not like this is kind of entirely new. I know the notion of abortion in this country um, is, is kind of something people have had difficulty getting their minds around. But often a miscarriage would involve a DNC. And that's something that hospitals are already doing in those circumstances. Now, obviously, at that point, the fetus has died. In this point, that, that is is there's a difference. But, I mean... When you look at um, the the kind of debate that we've been having in the Dáil and the fact that there hasn't been a guillotine, the fact that this legislation has been allowed to be aired, you know, up until last week, I think even people saw politicians like Kate O'Connell getting extremely frustrated with what was coming from TDs who, as she described them, lost the argument and are kind of trying to rerun it. I think perhaps the minister um, was so eager maybe to get it through um, that perhaps that deadline was imposed to nearly make the doll do its business quicker. You know, and really what we've been left with now is is, is sort of frantic uh, discussion in the newspapers about whether doctors will be able to carry out these procedures or not. What John was saying about, you know, uh, you would hope, I'm sure, that the boards of management would sit around and, and set up committees or whatever. That is not my experience of the health service. I mean, my experience is they all look at each other, shrug their shoulders and say, we'll have to wait for the legislation, we'll have to wait for the minister to come back to us, we'll have to wait for guidelines. You know, they're not particularly proactive in that regard.
2: Okay, we're going to come on after the break to talk about Brexit because there's lots of coverage in the papers on Brexit as well. Our panel, Neve Lines, Colette Brown, and John Isle, are staying with us. We'll be back in a moment.
0: On the record,
2: on, on News Talk. You're listening to On the Record here on News Talk with me, Susan Keo Our panel has stayed with us, Neve Lyons, Colette Brown, and John Isle. Now, as I said, lots of coverage in this morning's papers on Brexit, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. But the former UK Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has just been on the Andrew Marr show on the BBC. We'll have a little listen now to some of their exchange on the Irish backstop.
0: I think that the issue of how to solve the Irish border question was never properly taken so early on in the talks. Uh, what we should do now is remit it to the discussion on the free trade agreement, which can take place during the implementation period, right up to the end of 2020, and ask for uh, whether or not it's possible for our EU friends and partners to accept the idea... Of withdrawal agreement that doesn't include the backstop. Well, they've had Listen two to, years listen and they've to said no. Listen to, but they they it took them ages even to think of it. I mean, the, anyway, the idea was partly generated by us. If look at what Romano Prodi, the former EU Commission President, had to say yesterday, he said that if the House of Commons votes down this deal, which I earnestly hope that we do, then the EU will of course negotiate. And yes. to be frank. It's not their number one issue at the moment. And I think he's a very important uh, voice, Romano Prodi, mm-hmm. and a very a very influential, no. influential figure. And I think that they will uh, look at the, the, the ups and downs. They'll say, what is the risk here? The risk is of, of no deal. Nobody on either side of the channel wants no deal. Uh, they will say, is it possible for us to re- reword? Very much to re? Fingers. No, not at all. Is it possible for us to reword this uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, the 174 pages, so as to give the UK a unilateral exit mechanism? Yes, it is. And indeed, the UK drafted such proposals, but then failed to table them. That is the way to go. You, you mentioned the, the Northern Irish border. Your proposed idea is the so-called Canada++ plus model, yes? yes? The free trade model on the Canadian yes. model. Now, the Prime Minister has conceded that that was offered to us by the EU, but only to Great Britain, not to Northern Ireland. So that would indeed create a border in the but, Irish Sea. But, you, know, you went to the DUP conference. You can't yes. want that. You can't. That can't be acceptable no, to you. Of course not. But so it's not uh, an of course, model. Uh, what the EU is trying to do is to give us an absolutely unacceptable choice. They're trying to say uh, you can either divide your country or the whole country can remain in subjection forever, uh, accepting mm. uh, EU law and bound by EU trade rules. So that's, that's the choice that they're trying to offer. We've got to reject that choice by getting rid of the backstop and uh, remitting, as I say, the solution to that Irish border problem uh, to the discussions on the free trade laws.
2: Now the former UK Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson there speaking on the Andrew Marr show on the BBC in the last hour. John new levels of delusion or similar levels of delusion?
1: It's embarrassing to even have to respond mm-hmm. I think like th- this idea that one the EU has forced them into some position where they've been offered these unpalatable choices is ridiculous it's a, it's a choice that they freely made for themselves they just don't like the consequences of, uh, uh, of having decided to leave the EU. I noticed there that he's talking as if Ireland isn't a part of the EU. He keeps referring to to make the decision across the channel, right? Uh, as if the EU only resides in Brussels. But but the EU resides also on the other side of the Irish Sea and on the other side of the Northern Irish border, which is something he's not taking into consideration at all. So the idea of remitting the backstop to some future negotiation means that what we, we retain the status quo here on the island of Ireland, which means effectively... They're staying in the EU with all the customs uh, 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 arrangements they already have, which is an option he just explicitly rejected. So either he doesn't understand or this is shenanigans from Boris Johnson once again.
2: Colette, what do you make of what he had to say there?
4: I can just imagine Simon Coveney screaming into <laughs> a pillow somewhere as he listens to more of this rubbish. I think rubbish. Simon <laughs> Coveney's
2: in a home for the bewildered
4: <laughs> at this stage. I mean, I, I don't know anybody who takes <coughs> Boris Johnson seriously anymore. The only person who apparently takes him seriously is Andrew Marr who had that interview with him this morning. I mean, even... And the who invited him to his <laughs> Just then. <laughs> I mean, even during the week he made a contribution in Parliament with the same kind of guff. You know, he speaks about the EU and remaining within this transitionary arrangement and terms of slavery, subjection, being a vassal state um, and he was booed by members of his own by his own party and it seemed that he wasn't very popular even among members of the Tory party where people were telling him that you consistently point out problems with this deal but yet you have no solutions and the solution that he is offering is a solution that's based on delusion and a complete incomprehension of the way that the EU works. I mean trying to negotiate the backstop you know as if the Irish government are going to stand for that. I mean the Irish government have been clear as from the outset that this is something the Irish border situation needs to be something that it, that does form part of the withdrawal agreement and for Boris Johnson to say well kind of Theresa May can blithely go off to the EU and kind of casually say well uh, listen lads we're actually not too pleased with that now. I know we only have three months left before the withdrawal agreement is supposed to take effect, but can we go back to the drawing board and renegotiate all of that so that we can have all the good parts of the, of the EU that we want, but you know, we're going to reject all the kind of stuff that, that we don't like. I mean, the fact that we're still having this debate now. Parliament is supposed to have this vote on May's Tuesday. deal on Tuesday. It's looking very unlikely that she's going to have the numbers. There's some debate in the papers today and some suggestion, particularly from the Sunday Times, that she's going to try to put a uh, delay on gl- it. Yeah, d- put, put a delay. But I mean, I don't think she has the numbers even within uh, the, the Commons to get a vote that would allow her to delay, to delay it. taking the vote because we saw that she had three massive defeats in, in Parliament uh, last week so I mean the whole thing is up in the air uh, May's deal looks like it it, it it won't have a majority support in Parliament and then the question arises well what happens next?
2: Neve, there's some interesting pieces in the papers yeah. today because I suppose <laughs> we're in that kind of vacuum where we don't you know at the minute we're just everybody is looking at a crystal ball to try and say what's going to happen obviously it looks like she's going to be defeated but how by how many will it be a colossal defeat mm. you know is she is it will it be a smaller defeat would she try and go back to barnier and try and negotiate you know so at the minute people don't know what's going to happen i think people are reluctant to try and you know pin their colours to the mask but there's a lot of analysis just in general yeah. in, in the papers well, today about some of the different that we
3: still don't know the shape of brexit and we have reached you know the edge of the cliff now we're staring out into the deep blue water like, the, the things I would bet my house on happening in the next few weeks are that deal will, the, the, the meaningful vote will be defeated possibly into the hundreds. That absolutely no way will the EU reopen that withdrawal deal. I mean, the notion, I would say she would probably be able to get some um, reassurance in the political declaration that was agreed between her government and the EU. And perhaps inserted into that, you could have some kind of language around the backstop saying that, you know, we will endeavour to do our best to ensure that the backstop will never have to come into play. That would be the height of it. And I suppose we're also heading, thankfully, farther and farther away from um, a no-deal Brexit. And that's because of what happened last week in Parliament with Dominic Greaves' amendment, a Tory politician um, enforced an issue about the Parliament having a say um, in what would happen if this vote is lost. So there will be a 21 day period. Now there is general agreement uh, on one thing across the House of Commons and that's that there should not be a hard Brexit. It would be too difficult for everyone to take. In particular Ireland as we know would be the biggest country to suffer, more so even than the UK. Um, but I, I suppose with Theresa May you're wondering at this point whether you know, the Downing Street apparently came out today and said that the vote will go ahead. But you're wondering whether or not in putting that, I mean, she will lose face a little bit if she decides to postpone this vote. Um, but the optics of it um, going down are just really, really terrible. I mean, often I am critical of the EU in these situations. I wonder whether the EU side could have given her a little bit more comfort, something else to play with. But if we're just going to constantly hear this refrain about Northern Ireland, which, you know, they seem to have such a difficult time coming to terms with the fact that for the moment, that is their own country. They are the people who they are supposed to feel this kinship with that they don't really know anything about. Mm. I mean, I think that's a real tragedy that it, it has kind of exposed that. And that's also fed into something that Mary Lou Macdonald was talking about again during the week and we had a poll in the Times this week about a border poll. Most people now in the North are in favour of having a border poll and a certain percentage of unionists would actually vote in favour of that. It's a low percentage. Um, And and another interesting aspect of our poll during the week was the fact that uh, 26% of unionists don't feel that the DUP has acted correctly in how it's gone about things with Theresa May that people up there are just so worried that, you know, essentially a game of chicken has been played with their economy.
2: And they're losing.
3: Absolutely. And 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 like, you know, the thing with during the week with Pretty Patel, this idea of
2: There's a lot of coverage food, on, this and on this and
3: can we use this um idea that it'll be tougher on Ireland to kind of force their hand a little bit? You know, obviously she's completely unaware um you know, of the devastation and the 8 million people that died or emigrated, you know, just a century and a half ago. But that's the type of mentality that you're dealing with here. They are attempting, they are in, in a desperate position. They're, they they have been backed into a corner, which is what the EU never said they wanted to happen. And obviously somebody knows a lot about these things, Brittany Hearn knows a lot about... Um, the type of EU negotiations and how difficult they can get. One thing he has warned about all along is that perhaps at some point, all eyes will turn back on the Irish Taoiseach and it'll be like, look, I mean, how how far are you willing to go with, the, with our own game of chicken in relation to the backstop before we have to make a concession? And that's a huge fear. But I, I, I do believe that, you know, the withdrawal deal is a done deal. There's uh, the concept of there's no on taking that chaos.
2: John, can I come back to you? There's also some coverages, uh, coverage in the papers today of the situation in Germany and the new leader and also protests in Paris. We've seen a lot about that over the weekend and pressure that Macron is under. So if we look at Europe beyond Brexit, there's also a hugely uncertain future there as well outside of what's going on with the backstop in the UK.
1: Well, I, I think these are the sort of flurps we've seen in developed countries. Um, you know, Brexit is a, is a symptom of it, the election of Donald Trump is a symptom of it. Mm. Um, this the sort of um, emergence of the five, five star movement in Italy, which is that that people in the in the post crisis era or the continuing crisis era, however you want to want to measure it, um, feel that their, say their economic and their social interests haven't been properly looked after, and we can feel it here too in the in the housing crisis. We went very quickly from one kind of housing crisis to another. You know where we had an abundance of housing. And prices is cratered and it destroyed personal balance sheets to a situation where the generation now uh, coming of age can't really afford to live in their own country, even at a time of full unemployment, you know. So we're, we're, we're in this sort of economically contradictory sort of um, age right now in, in Europe. Now, I, I, like I tend to be an optimist about these things. I think like I, I can't say I know a great deal about what's happening in, in Paris. I, I know Germany a lot better. Um, and I think there has been always something rumbling under the surface in Germany since unification that has never been properly dealt with, which is the the continued economic inequality between the two halves. And if you look at where the right wing is resurgent, it's, it's in the east, which has never uh, properly – they've never properly bedded down a sort of neoliberal capitalistic ideology over there, right? So they went from communism to sort of this um, – this transition to capitalism that didn't quite work out for everybody in the East, and now they seem to be latching on to this this alternative, right? Um, but you know, Merkelism is going to last a long time. That's basically the the DNA, the sort of conservative DNA uh, of Germany. And even though there were a lot of um, ruptures in her party, especially in the last in the last two years, this the basic German temperament, I, I think, is very much. Angela Merkel's temperament. So I, I don't worry too much about Germany wobbling there. Italy is the big worry, of course, because it's a huge economy that seems to be going nowhere, um, and everybody's worried about the budgetary promises that the current government has made to to their people. Um, and that's a showdown within the EU that I think that I think bears watching. Um, once we're finished killing ourselves over Brexit,
2: <laughs> <laughs> which hopefully will happen soon. Okay, John Colette and Eve stay with us. We need to take a short break.
1: On the record. On, On News Talk.
2: You're listening to On The Record here on News Talk with me, Susan Kyo. My panel is with me, Neve Lines, Colette Brown and John Isle. Colette, let me come to you. We were talking about the situation in France there just before the break with John. Uh, you have a comment to make. What's yeah, happening? I
4: just think the, the makeup of the group is something that is kind of slightly concerning and slightly nebulous. I mean, we have all of these people who've congregated but they're a disparate kind of grassroots movement and there seems to be, as well as kind of uh, centrist members of the group, there's a far Far right and far left factions of the group and I think that was exemplified yesterday when we had Katie Hopkins on the one hand her, or tweeting mm. her support of the Yellow vest, and also Owen Jones who's like a left-wing mm. commentator yeah. also tweeting his support and there was a poll in France that's out today that suggests that actually it's the far right kind of party in France that has uh, that gives the most support to these Yellow Vests so Le Pen's uh, uh, supporters, 42% of them are in favour of the Yellow Vests is Melanchon who would be the you know the left wing kind of uh, politician in France 20% of his members so i think when we're looking at the LVS movement it's not a cohesive group there are you know kind of fascist anti anti immigrant members or very left wing members of the group i think it's notable as well that in france a couple of weeks ago there was a protest demanding action on climate change 25000 people took to the streets almost no media coverage of that mm-hmm. yesterday we saw 8000 people okay. on, on france and there's huge, huge like and yeah. not not only with in France, but internationally huge coverage of this movement. And actually, the numbers coming out on the streets were quite small. Uh, The difference is that the level of kind of violence and the, you know, kind of burning buildings and trying to break into kind of posh parts of Paris, because some, um, a minority of the protesters engaged in those kinds of tactics, then it got more media coverage than I think maybe necessarily it did deserve.
3: And ostensibly, those protests begun um, as a, an anti-carbon tax kind of protest. And Macron has now already done a U-turn on those measures. Um, he was increasing the t- the price of fuel um, and there was also a separate increase on electricity. Um, that is something that government buildings will have to take note of. Um, I mean, we, we've never seen the type of protests on the streets of Ireland that we've seen on the mm. streets of Paris, but certainly let's recall the water charge yeah. protests. Now huge difference between a charge or a utility that people will be asked to pay and a tax which is basically something the revenue commissioners will look after and if you don't pay it frankly it'll come out of your welfare or your, it, they'll make an attachment order onto your salary. However the, the model being explored and it looks like the one that's certainly holding favour with the government at the moment is something that's already in operation in British Columbia this carbon tax plus dividend model which probably sounds crazy but the idea where you would have a carbon tax and then people would basically get a cheque in the post- or an increase to welfare payment um, or a tax credit um, to the exact amount that's paid. Um, it's quite a progressive tax because it means that you know, the amount of money that goes back to people, it's it's usually the lower users of carbon that benefit more. Um, but I, I, I think... When we were talking earlier about abortion, certainly with carbon taxes, this is something that the Taoiseach will have to start really readying the ground on. The government are already trying to do that with the, the cross-governmental plan that they have to have ready by the end of this year. But trying to get people used to the notion that we're going to be paying an extra tax and a big one Before it happens. is going to be huge.
2: Um, John, let me come back to you in relation to the markets. We saw uh, this making front page news in the latter part of last week as well. Uh, Chinese tremors having implications for all of our fortunes. Tell us, there's a good bit of coverage in the Sunday papers about this.
1: Yes, quite a bit and probably probably one of the best ones for, for kind of an overview of where we're going is in the Sunday Business Post, Barry White kind of does a survey, you know, of market commentators and... Um, uh, look, it's it's easy when, uh, when politics, especially superpower politics, are wrapped up in what's happening in, in the markets to feel like we're at some kind of a turning point. I'm not sure that that's true. But what we saw this week was a very enthusiastic stock market on Monday after the G20 meeting where it looked like um, – xi jinping and donald trump had come to some sort of an agreement to work out their differences over tariffs that was until the very next day when donald trump decided to pull the rug out from under them and say well actually no we're going to send our toughest negotiator over there and um we're, we're not completely i'm a tariff man and i'm not giving up on this idea of tariffs so there's a sort of a a bait and switch going on there which wobbled markets and then we had the arrest in canada at the united states behest of um meng wanzhou who is uh, the cfo of huawei one of the biggest tech companies. Uh, in, in in China um, which looks like the United States sort of using a corporate officer as a bargaining chip in their trade negotiations now it's important to remind everybody that the new tariffs even if all of the tariffs that have been proposed are actually applied we're still looking at under a trillion worth of global trade being affected when I think global trade or global GDP is something like 44 trillion right so it's a it winds up that it's, we're talking about a fraction here, but it's the signaling that's very important, right? So everybody's afraid at this particular juncture. One, uh, you know, have markets climbed past their peak? And are we past the peak? And what does that mean? Um, the bond markets seem to be saying that there's a recession possibly in the far-off future. Nobody's really sure what to make of that yet, but maybe in 18 to 24 months we're facing a slowdown. On the whole, though, corporate earnings are very good. Growth, especially in the United States, is very strong. Europe is disappointing in terms of growth, but it always does. And our own domestic economy is actually quite good. There's a lot of very good economic news around. And even in China, although growth isn't going to be as big as uh, as, as it once was, the government there is looking at being quite accommodative in, in terms of the um, the spending that they can do on behalf of the economy. So the actual economic decisions that are being made around the world are pretty good and pretty sound, but we're at this sort of um, tense juncture where this uh, the, these sort of trade talks and these trade disputes are happening at a time when people are beginning to doubt the future of the market. At the and moment. that's
2: uh, Barry White's piece in exactly, the Sunday yep. Business Post. Okay, to finish up, we want to talk about Fairy Tale of New York. Let me let me come to you on this. There's a good bit of coverage, commentary, and analysis on uh, this in the papers today. Yeah, to be honest, I don't
4: really understand what the, all the fuss is about <laughs> with, with this. I mean, if I, I understand from the perspective of, of gay people that uh, faggot is word that obviously would have been used would, would would be very hurtful. A lot of people when they were growing up they might have been called that in school it has terrible connotations for them. We live in a more pluralistic and you know equality driven society but I mean just beep out the word. I mean, if, if if it's been played on radio stations. But do you uh, think it should be beeped out? Uh, I personally don't have a problem with it, but I can see from the. I'm not gay, so I never had to deal with uh, slurs like that yeah. when, when, when I was growing up, and I don't have that kind of perspective. So I think just beep it. And I think Shane McGowan uh, released a statement this week, and he was explaining that, you know, it's a character in the song. It's not a very nice character. They're to And he used a nasty word because he's a nasty the character. Because yeah. it, it's, it's not a very sympathetic mm. character in the song. You know, it's like the kind of anti-Christmas song as a Christmas song. Uh, but he was saying that if people did have a problem with it and it was, you know, providing, you know, it did was the, you know, source of hurt for people, just beep the word
3: and just get on with it. Yeah. What do you it think, wasn't, wasn't as um. much as an emotionally charged word, when that song was written, now it's it's a terrible word.
2: That should well, that's be the point that's been itself. made in some of yeah. the pieces today. That if if possibly we are going to look at every piece of art or every song that will have, you know, museums and libraries yeah, that no longer no have today in right them Jane. anymore, because we'll have to just eliminate everything. Yeah, there's a
3: piece in the Sunday Indo today about whether the song "Baby It's Cold Outside" is problematic because of the idea that a woman is trying to leave a guy's clutches, who obviously you know wants to get her into bed and he's not letting her go I mean it's funny I have an 11 month old little boy and he loves Disney songs and one of the songs we let him listen to is a Cinderella one about where basically at, at one point they're making Cinderella's dress and they, they say like leave the sewing to the women and I always laugh when I hear it because I kind of think that that movie was one of the first Disney movies it's from the 1950s it's of its time and I think later on in life if he still likes the song and he says how come the women have to do the sewing it'll open up a lovely conversation between us where I go look your dad in this house is just as likely to have to sew a button as your mom." you're like I have no know. idea how to sew <laughs> thank, thank you, you.
2: Uh, John what did you make I mean, like, you know, I think somebody makes the point, should there be an amnesty for everything that happened like that in the past that no longer has those connotations, but that there will be an amnesty for when they were used back then?
1: No, I I think this is a really useful conversation to have. I don't believe in an amnesty. I think it was always wrong to use that word. It doesn't matter if it was in common currency, um, because it was always used to exclude people. It was always used to make people feel marginalised and outside or different or wrong. Right. Um, We all know that that word has that history. And what's happened now, I think, and it's important to recognize, is that that was a word used to talk about people who weren't part of the conversation about themselves. What has happened now is those people, gay people, are part of the discourse about this word. And some of them have piped up or their allies have piped up and said, hang on a second, are we okay with this word? Are we still okay with it being part of our, of our, our Christmas repertoire? And maybe we should talk about that. Now, we can come down on the side that, like, the merits of this as a piece of art and Shane McGowan's explanation of th- this word's place in the song, mm. I think, is a very good one, right? And, but you should have to make the argument that the merits of the art outweigh the pain people feel when they hear this word, right? I didn't grow up here, so I'd never heard that song until I moved here. And when I did hear it, I was, I was knocked over. I couldn't believe there was a song on the radio That had that that word. word, I I couldn't believe it. It was shocking to me, right? So I come from a culture where the N-word appears in a lot of music, but it gets bleeped out, right? right, You can listen to it at home and hear that word all you Mm. want, just like anybody can listen to *Fairy Tale of New York at home in their stereo and hear it how they want to, right? But let's not pretend that that word isn't damaging, isn't itself violent, and, and that it often precedes violence that is inflicted on people who don't deserve it. So like the, the word has a whole valence of meanings and feelings around it. And, and all this debate does for me is it brings that up into, into public discussion, right? And it's a public discussion we should have. What I can't stand, what I can't tolerate is all the people who say, who dismiss that discussion and say it's not even worth having, that this is PC gone mad, et cetera, et cetera. It's not. It's basic decency. It's accepting that gay people have humanity, that they have feelings too, and that those feelings are worth respecting and they're worth taking into consideration um, with what we put on our airwaves and how we talk about each other. That's, to me, very simple and basic.
2: OK, we're going to have to leave it there because we've run out of time. Well Massive thanks to you. <laughs> well said, John. I've learned something today. <laughs> so have I. I can go home to bed now. OK, my thanks to our panel, Niamh Lyons, political editor with the Ireland edition of The Times, Colette Brown, barrister and columnist with the Irish Independent, and John Isle, uh, mine of information, head of communications for Goodbody. Lots more to come in the next hour. On the record. On, On News Talk.